Now, the topic of LGBT issues is certainly really sensitive, and uh, we felt compelled to, to do that for this Underground Sessions. We also feel compelled to kind of set that up this week. And so Pastor Dave and I are going to co-teach this message and start to get us into this topic. And so to do that, what we'd like you to do at the beginning here is imagine that these six chairs are filled with six very real people. And so in this chair, I'd like to introduce you to a gentleman I worked with at Starbucks named Brian. Brian was um, not a Christian. He was actively living a gay lifestyle, and uh, he thought there was nothing wrong with that. Uh, That was who he was, and people should accept him. He loved his boyfriend. And so while we worked together, Brian and I never really talked about this much, although he knew that I was training for the ministry and I was a Christian. And so a couple years after I stopped working at Starbucks, I got a message on Facebook from Brian uh, updating me on his life. He told me he had broken up with his boyfriend, and he was now going to church. And he had a very important question for me, and the question was this, was he going to hell because he was gay? And let's just say over here in this chair on the left is my friend who I'm just going to call Phil. I baptized Phil a number of years ago. Uh, Phil is a uh, committed Christian. Uh, as a teenage boy, though, he's struggling with something. Uh, earlier on in his life, around age 10, his dad had a sudden heart attack. And uh, this was obviously very traumatic for him. And as an adolescent, um, he is beginning to experience same-sex attraction. Um, You would never know that because he would never tell you, and he would certainly not act on that. But he did confide in me as his pastor about that, and he has prayed that the Lord would remove these uh, desires from him. Uh, But at this point, the Lord has not answered that prayer. And so he's beginning to wonder what would it look like to live a life of celibacy as a single uh, same-sex attracted man. He's um, confused, he's hurt, and he's scared. And this chair is my friend who I'll call John. John is a man in his late 30s who just recently got married, has a new child. It's a very exciting time of life for John. Uh, but John also has a remarkable story. You see, he grew up in a home with an overbearing mother and a very passive father. And from the time that he was little, he felt an attraction to other boys, both physically and emotionally. John grew up and started to eventually act on those uh, feelings, got involved in a number of same-sex relationships, and eventually moved from his hometown to a large city to pursue one of them. While he was there, that relationship eventually broke up, and John found himself on hard times. While he was in the park one day, begging for money, a Christian pastor who had a ministry there came up and witnessed to him, and John gave his life over to Jesus. After that, He still battled with same-sex attraction, but eventually God gave him the strength to resist those desires. Now he's married, and he works for a college ministry. Right here is my good friend Henry. Uh, Henry's in his 80s. You would love Henry. He loves the Lord, loves studying the Bible. Um, He's just a great Christian man, good Italian family guy. Uh, Henry has a son who's same-sex attracted. Uh, His son has decided to marry another man and uh, move across the world. Henry obviously was brokenhearted about this because of his commitment to the Lord. He expressed his love for his son, uh, but he also told his son that he could not condone uh, the marriage choice that his son had made. Well, that kind of love was not good enough for Henry. Uh, That kind of love was not good enough for Henry's son. And so he has chosen not to talk to his dad for a number of years. 
Uh, Henry's been through a lot in his life. He's a cancer survivor. There's a whole lot of things he's gone through. But he said to me, Pastor Dave, this issue of being apart from my son is the most difficult thing I've ever gone through in my life. And this chair is a man that I knew when I was at Denver Seminary. He and I went to the same church. It was a church I interned at. In fact, he even let our youth leaders have an appreciation dinner at his store. His name is Jack Phillips, and he owns a shop in Colorado called Masterpiece Cake Shop. Got a beautiful view of the Rocky Mountains in this room we were in. You may have heard about Jack because Jack's been in the news recently. A same-sex attracted couple sued him because he refused to bake a wedding cake for their ceremony. Jack got caught up in litigation for several years, got hit really hard financially, and his case made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court this year. Jack doesn't have anything against gay people, but he had the desire to live out his sincere religious convictions in the marketplace. And then finally, this is Amy. Amy's not a Christian. Uh, Amy's not even a seeker with God. Uh, She's a lesbian woman who's in a relationship with a girl named Vicky. Uh, one morning, Amy got an idea and said, hey, Vicky, I know what we'll do today. Let's go to church. And Vicky was like, church? Why would I want to go there? I mean, uh, you know, I, I hate them. They hate me. Uh, you know, what would I want to do that for? And Amy said, well, no, we're just going to go and kind of push their buttons. You know, we'll sit in the pew close to one another, kind of cuddle and see what kind of reaction we get, just to kind of see if we can, you know, give them a hard time. And... Uh, They walked into that church that day, fully expecting to get looks of disgust and shock. I wonder if Amy would have chosen uh, to come to our church, what kind of looks, what kind of reactions she would have gotten from us this morning. The reason why we begin this way is because uh, when we address this issue, we want to remember that we are not just talking about issues, we're talking about real people, Uh, real people made in the image of God. Uh, Secondly, uh, the reason why we would begin this way is because when we talk about this issue, we're not talking about an issue. We're talking about a variety of different issues with a variety of different people and a variety of different circumstances, all wrestling with this issue of ethics. And so we need to keep that in mind because each one has its own complications. And thirdly, I think we can acknowledge that we, as the universal church, haven't always done really well dealing with this topic in the Mm -hmm. past. Now, no matter where you stand on topics relating to the LGBT community, it's painfully clear that people of that community have been treated quite horrifically at certain times in history. It hasn't been uncommon to fear for your life if you come out as gay. I mean, even today, people are killed for their sexual orientation in certain parts of the world. And as you're hearing that, some of us may have anger welling up in our hearts, saying, well, the church should do something about it. The church should be better. And we agree. But we also have to admit that we, again, as the universal church, have often contributed to this problem. In fact, when we think about the church and LGBT people, images of the Westboro Baptist Church probably flash in our mind and their motto, which I won't repeat from the stage. Their open disdain for LGBT people is more than unsettling. Or more recently, a pastor named Stephen Anderson of the faithful word Baptist Church in Tempe, Arizona, has made headlines for his comments. He said that LGBT stands for Let God Burn Them. After the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando of 2016, um, Anderson said it was good there was 50 fewer pedophiles in this world. Now, some of us in this room may even resonate with that. And let me challenge you. This is problematic because it is a message of pure condemnation. No grace, no gospel, 
just harshness and cruelty. And others of us are sitting here saying, well, that's not fair. I mean, these voices don't represent the heart of the true church. They're not biblical. Well, we agree, but like it or not, they are the way many peop- what many people associate with the church. In fact, in their 2007 book, Unchristian, Gabe Lyons and David Kinneman researched the biggest barriers to young people coming to faith, and here is one of their conclusions. They say this. They say, in our research, the perception that Christians are against gays and lesbians has reached critical mass. The gay issue has become the big one, the negative image most likely to be intertwined with Christianity's reputation. It's also the dimension that most clearly demonstrates the unchristian faith of young people today, surfacing a spate of negative uh, perceptions from judgmental to bigoted to sheltered, right-wingers, hypocritical, insincere, and uncaring. But then they go on and they say this. They say, outsiders say our hostility towards gays, not just opposition to homosexual politics and behaviors, but disdain for gay individuals has become virtually synonymous with the Christian faith. Let me read that again. Disdain for gay individuals has become virtually synonymous with the Christian faith. And church, whatever you believe about the Bible, you have to read all of the Bible. And nowhere in Scripture does God condone disdain for our fellow image bearers. In fact, James speaks directly against that. And yet the reputation of the church, especially the evangelical church, has been one of condemnation for LGBT people. And so when people take the risk of coming out and sharing their struggle with others in the church, far too often they are met with awkwardness and shame and ostracism. And so honestly, it's no wonder people don't want to share their struggle with others. In fact, even within the church community, studies have shown an increase in suicidal tendencies among those who are Christians with same-sex attraction, especially when they're rejected by their families. A 2009 paper published in the journal Pediatrics showed that lesbian, gay, and bisexual young adults who reported higher levels of family reaction during adolescence were eight and a half times more likely to report having attempted suicide compared with peers who reported low or no levels of family rejection. Now, I suspect there are multiple types of people in this room today, and so you have to be empathetic that this isn't an easy issue for us to talk about. And so speaking to everyone isn't an easy task, but let me identify five groups. First, let me speak to parents, because if you're a parent here today and we're bringing up this topic, you're sitting there asking yourself, well, how do I talk with my kids about this? Do they already know? What do I do if they come and share with me that they're experiencing these feelings? As a parent of a very young child, I have great sympathy for you. The, ti- the climate in today's culture is, is challenging. Secondly, some of us in this room choose to only see this issue through a political lens. And while there are political considerations definitely to take into account, let me challenge you today that we need to hear, uh, we need to, we need to um, not simply see this as an issue to fight in a culture war, but as people to listen to. Because behind these battles are real people who are struggling. Third, you may be a Christian here today who thinks that the church makes a bigger deal about this than it needs to be. Why are we even bringing this up? You may even be convinced that the Bible can be read in such a way that it affirms same-sex relationships. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But we want to challenge you today to have an open mind about what the text says. Fourth, I suspect there are many here today who love the Bible and who love people. And you are convicted that the traditional sex ethic of the Bible is correct, but you are really wondering, how do I live that out? What does that mean for real life? Because what you understand is that if you what you understand is that the traditional interpretation of the Bible 
affects the names and the faces and the outcomes of people you love. How do we live that out in practice? And so I encourage you especially to attend our events next weekend. Finally, perhaps you're here today and you consider yourself a member of the LGBT community. While we are not able to fully understand your story, we do want to dialogue with you empathetically about what you're going through. So wherever you are today, we hope we can learn together. We're going through a sermon series called Belief in an Age of Skepticism, and every single week we're taking one critical question about life and faith in our culture, and we're tackling that. Today we're tackling the issue of ethics or morality. That's really what this is all about. That's really what these six people in these chairs are struggling with, issues of ethics. So the question we want to know is, do we need God for morals? And you'll see three parts to our message today. Why do we need a moral code? What does the moral code actually say? And then how do we live out this particular moral code? And we'll use the LGBT issue as kind of a case study in this arena. While there's lots of areas we could talk about, we're going to kind of focus in on that issue. And before we do so, why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we just open up our hearts wide to you, asking you to show us what is in your word. Show us your heart, Lord Jesus, uh, for your people. And we ask, God, that you would find us faithful to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. We especially pray for our speakers as they need your help. Amen. So, question number one. Why do we even need a moral code? We live in an age when the idea of anything being truly right or wrong is open to question. But if you've ever been really wronged, or you've had an injustice perpetrated against you, well, then you know that this is not simply an academic question. For example, on the one side of this debate, there are those who say gay marriage is wrong. Then on the other side of the debate, there are those who say, well, withholding the right to get married is wrong. But let's just back up a second before we get to that. What does right and wrong really mean anyway? Who decides what is right and wrong? You? Me? What are we talking about? When you say something is wrong, you're implying that there's some kind of transcendent moral standard that's being violated, right? But what is that standard that you are appealing to? Now, a Christian would say, of course, the source of that standard is God. But what if someone doesn't believe in God? Then what? What we want to argue is that if that's true, if you don't have any sort of belief in God, then morality is nothing more than your personal preference, nothing more than your personal opinion. All morality becomes relative. Hey, if it works for you, it works for you. We say it's all good, right? It's all good. But is that true? Is it really all good? If not, what's not good and how would we know? There was a time period in the scriptures called the times of the judges. And one of the descriptions of that time is found at the end of the book. It says, in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time of immorality and murder and even civil war. Total anarchy. This was not good. But how do we know that? How are moral decisions made? If they are really just individual personal preferences, on what basis would we ever obligate someone else to follow that preference? If everyone can develop their own individualized morality, how are we to function as a society? This is partly the reason why our society is so polarized right now. There isn't a common foundation. The only thing we're doing is shouting the other person down. Or we're appealing to power. Might makes right. 
Well, if morality doesn't work if it's individualized, what else could we do? Is it that the majority of people get to decide what's right? We take a vote on it, majority rules. That's fair. But what if the majority of a certain people in a society agree that something very terrible is okay? What if those in Nigeria, if if those in Boko Haram, all agree that it's okay morally to kidnap schoolgirls? Does something really become right just because a majority of that society says it's right? Can you see how we need some sort of transcendent ethical standard? There's a major problems. There's a major problem that erupts when God is eliminated and ethics become meaningless. Fyodor Dostoevsky said it this way, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. Now, I know atheists who hear that kind of bristle. When we say you have no basis for morality, what they hear is that you're saying I'm being immoral, but that's not actually what I'm saying. The point is you don't have a basis for your morality. As Pastor Bob said last week, in a few million years, the sun's going to go supernova. It's not going to really matter what we do here anyway. So we're not saying that someone who doesn't believe in God isn't capable of doing good. We're saying that that worldview doesn't provide an adequate foundation for morality and ethics. Think of it this way. Morality without God is like a vase of cut flowers. looks pretty good. It's okay. It's partially alive. But it's also on its way to dying. It's been severed from its roots. See, that's why at our foundation as Christians, we believe we need God for our morals as an objective moral standard. And we've been given one graciously by him so we don't have to guess. We don't have to take a vote because God has spoken. Psalm 119 says it this way, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. So this is where we come from, and this is where we go to answer moral and ethical dilemmas because we believe we're not just accountable to something. We're accountable to someone, our God, our creator. It's not a very popular message, but it is what the word of God teaches, which brings us to movement two. We see the need for an ethical standard, but what does our ethical standard actually say? Again, focusing in on this one challenging topic that has come to the forefront of our culture that has caused great tension for many, including me. Many of us love the word of God, but then we also love people in our lives who are LGBT. How do we reconcile this? This is why we're compelled to deal with this today and next weekend. There's a major debate going on about this, not just outside the church, but inside the church. Recently, I read Matthew Vine's book called Gay God and the Gay Christian, And he makes this assertion. Christians who affirm the full authority of Scripture can also affirm committed, monogamous, same-sex relationships. Is that true? That's what we want to ask. According to the Scriptures, is homosexual activity a sin that must be repented of? Or can we consider same-sex sexual intimacy a blessing worth celebrating? That's the question. What do the Scriptures say? As you might guess, this is not an easy thing to talk about. Anybody else want to get up here and give this message today? (laughs) Some people come up to me and they say, Pastor Dave, the Bible's clear. Well, let me be honest. Many times when we hold this view, we tend to use the Bible almost like a weapon. Don't get me wrong. I care deeply about what the Bible says. The motto of the seminary I went to was, teach truth, love well. How do you do both of those things? What do the scriptures say? 
Well, let's take a look, and the first one we'll look at is from the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Leviticus, and I'll put it up on the screen. In chapter 18, it says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. In chapter 20, it says virtually the same thing. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Wow, strong language. Now, some of you have heard verses like these used as weapons against the LGBT community. And maybe you've passed churches where they have a sign outside that says, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Not exactly a welcome mat for someone who's struggling in this area. So we need to be careful about this in the context. In Leviticus, this is part of the Bible that was called the Holiness Code. The Holiness Code deals with ethics, particularly sexual ethics like you see here. And here we learn that this particular behavior is called an abomination. Now some of you are going, man, that's pretty archaic, old-sounding language, man. Nobody talks like this. Abomination. When you say that, I think of the abominable snowman. What are we talking about here? The word means, it's a Hebrew word, toeva. It's a very serious word. It's much more than just like a taboo. It's strong. It it implies a, a disapproval. It's a behavior that's offensive to a holy God because it goes against his design. Now, just because the Bible might use that strong language, let's be clear, we should not walk up to someone and call them an abomination. People are not abominations. People are made in the image of God and they are precious to him and you've never been eyeball to eyeball with a person that God did not create and you've never been eyeball to eyeball with a person that God does not love. With that said, there seems to be a behavior here that's being prohibited. For you technical people, if you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, you'll see two words describing this behavior. The word arson, which means man, and the word koite, which means bed which basically means when a man takes another man to bed. I want you to remember those two words because I know I'm going to come back to them a little bit later. But the larger question, if we're just going where the text leads us, is this, what does the Scripture teach us here? I think you have two options. You can interpret sexuality in light of the Scriptures, or you can interpret the Scriptures in light of your sexuality. And we would suggest the first option. As we as Christians believe Jesus calls us to commit our whole lives to him, and that means our sexual ethics. All sexual ethics should be lived in light of what God says is his design. But let me add this. This applies to all areas of sexual ethics. Because if we're sitting here casting judgment, I would ask how many of us have been totally sexually pure our whole lives? How many of us have lusted after someone that we're not married to? Jesus said, take the plank out of your own eye before you can remove the speck in your brother's eye. Last, I just want to mention one more thing. If you're here today and you're a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction, this couple of verses should not define your understanding of how God looks at this, or it should not define your understanding of how you experience church. Sam Albury a committed same-sex attraction celibate man says it this way in his excellent book, Is God Anti-Gay? What the Bible has to say about homosexuality does not represent everything the Bible has to say to homosexual people. Because here's the beautiful thing. The grand narrative of the Bible is one of redemption for those who believe, not condemnation. 
It's a story of a great God rescuing rebellious people, transforming hearts, and making us new. And the God who reveals himself in the scriptures is a holy God. He can't look upon sin. But, but, he's also a God who saves, who removes the shame and guilt we have experienced in our lives, who takes our broken stories and gives us new stories. He loves us. And that story begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, at the pinnacle of creation, God made us in his image after his likeness. That we were made in his image and we were given a large responsibility to have dominion over the earth. And then we learn in verse 27 that to be made in the image of God means that we're made male and female, two distinct complementary genders who would rule over the earth as the image bearers of God, his representatives. Now that opens the door to a whole host of theological discussions, the most pertinent of which is the topic of marriage, which is affirmed in Genesis 2. This is what we see. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. A man shall leave his mother and father and be united to a woman, and the two shall become one flesh. This was the beginning of the story of humanity on earth, that the divine design for sexual intimacy is to take place only when one man becomes one flesh with one woman. The Apostle Paul affirms this sexual ethic in his letters to the church, like the one in Thessalonica in chapter 4, verse 3. He says this. He says, in God's, it is God's will that you should become sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, that, that phrase, sexual immorality, used there is the Greek word pornea, which encompasses all sexual activity outside of marriage. The use of that word applies to all of us, that there should be no sexual activity outside of marriage, and we've already been given the picture of what marriage should look like in Genesis 2. You see, the meta-narrative of Scripture points to this design which begins in the garden and culminates at the end of time when Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, comes for his bride, the church, and they are made one. And so marriage is a picture of the end of time, the consummation of history when Christ and the church shall be one. Sam Alberry goes on to make this observation. He says, a man and a man or a woman and woman cannot reflect the union of Christ and the church, instead only reflecting Christ and Christ or church and church. Now, some of you may be saying, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Does this really still apply today? I mean, wasn't this the Old Testament law? And what about Jesus? Jesus never, ever spoke to LGBT issues, right? Well, that's a bit misleading, Oh, it might be a valid argument, except that Jesus does affirm the Genesis account of marriage in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. The context is of the Pharisees coming to Jesus, asking him about the topic of no-fault divorce. And in that context, Jesus says this. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So first of all, notice the manner in which Jesus affirms the authority of the scriptures. He's quoting from them because he believes they are God-breathed. Second, we must concede that Jesus doesn't mention same-sex marriage. But he does affirm the sexual ethic in place from creation itself, that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Thus, if we believe that same-sex sexual activity is sin... We must also believe that divorce is sin. 
In other words, we should not act more gracious towards divorced people or people who wrestle with heterosexual sin and less gracious towards those who wrestle with LGBT issues. However, we also have to be clear about the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. That's true, because every time I talk about this, this issue comes to the forefront. People say, you know, Pastor Dave, I hear you there, but, you know, you're quoting Genesis, you're quoting Leviticus. I mean, the Old Testament says a lot of things, man. It condemns a lot of things, uh, you know, that we don't really follow anymore, especially homosexuality. I mean, the Bible says not to eat shellfish in the book of Leviticus. It says not to eat bacon. When's the last time you had some bacon? For me, that's pretty recently. Ham, sausage, clams, all of those things, restrictive. And so you disregard those commands, Pastor Dave. Why do you think we have to follow some moral commands and not others? And that's pretty much how the argument goes each time, ending in kind of an impasse, stalemate. The answer is, contrary to popular criticism, Christians have not arbitrarily chosen to ignore parts of the Bible that we don't like. The Bible says there is this vast difference between living under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, there was a complex set of laws given to the people of Israel. Some of those laws were moral in nature, but other laws were given for ceremonial reasons, like laws for purity and worship and ritual cleanness. Back then, you could only approach God in worship if you were ritually clean. So if you only ate certain foods and not others, and if you only wore certain forms of dress and not others, or if you refrained from touching a variety of objects and so on, then you were clean. The point of those ceremonial laws was to convey over and over and over that you can't just simply go into God's presence. You had to go God's way because God is holy. The reason we no longer follow the ceremonial portion of the law in terms of ritual purification, is that we realize that the Old Testament sacrificial system is a system which was pointing beyond itself to something much greater, namely the coming of the Messiah and his great sacrifice on our behalf. When that reality came, the shadow that pointed to that reality faded away. That's why when Jesus came, he declared all foods to be clean in Mark chapter 7. In Acts 15, they had this big council about which laws still apply. That's why Jesus ignored certain cleanliness laws like touching lepers and touching dead bodies. We no longer live under the old covenant. Now we live under the new covenant. And once we understand that, then we understand that it's Jesus now who makes us clean. Once you get that, you kind of see how the various parts of the Bible fit together. There's really only two possibilities. You can reject Christ and who he is. That's fine. Or you can reject the Bible's moral standard, but one thing you cannot say, in all fairness, is that Christians are being inconsistent. Uh, Tim Keller says it best. One way to respond to the charge of inconsistency might be to ask another question, a counter question. Are you asking me to deny the very heart of my Christian beliefs? If I believe in Jesus as the resurrected Son of God, I can't follow all the clean laws of diet and practice, and I can't offer animal sacrifices. All that would be to deny the power of Christ's death on the cross. If there's ever any doubt about whether or not an Old Testament command is still valid and normative for today, traditionally, Christians have said, well, was that command repeated again in the New Testament? And so let's just flip over the page to the New Testament and look at some references there specifically to the first one is in 1 Corinthians. 
The church at Corinth lived in a culture that was highly sexualized and had a reputation for rampant immorality. Paul writes to that church in chapter 6 saying this, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. First of all, strong language there. Second, just notice that phrase, men who have sex with men. The ESV has given a very legitimate English translation of two Greek words, the words malakos, which means soft or effeminate, and then the word arsenikoites, which literally means man and bed, as a compound word. That's not an ambiguous term. That's a term that combines those two Greek words I mentioned earlier from Leviticus 18 and 20. Now think about where did Paul get his training in the scriptures? Where did Paul learn about the God that we worship? Wasn't he trained by Gamaliel? Wasn't he a Pharisee? Wouldn't he have known that text backwards and forwards? Of course he would. And that's why he uses those same terms here to reiterate the sexual ethic in the New Testament. And so many scholars think that this phrase here just refers to the, the active and passive male partners in a male sex relationship. Now, for those who are my conservative friends, I want you to notice something here. Notice that Paul also mentions greed and slander and addiction and all sexual immorality. I bet if we went through this list one by one, we would each see how guilty we all are. Paul gets us all. Indeed, this verse seems like bad news if it were not for what follows. Look at this. Paul says, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice that phrase, and that is what some of you were. Man, that is good news for all of us, right? God is not in the business of condemning us. He's in the business of redeeming those who repent and turn to him. What grace? And what happened to those who were engaged in same-sex activity, though? Did they turn away from it? Or did they say, no, I refuse to turn away from my sin. I demand God's blessing anyway, even though I will remain in this behavior. See, there's a phrase at the beginning of that verse that says, do not be deceived. There is a deception out there that says, it really doesn't matter what you do in this area because God loves you. Of course God loves you. But God's love always tells the truth about sin. Yes, God loves you, but that does not make sexual sin acceptable. If we do not say what is right and true about sin, is that really love? Aren't we denying to people the only thing that can offer them hope and transformation? There's a lot of talk today about inclusion, and it's a wonderful word. But I like how Dr. Michael Brown uses the word. Jesus and the apostles did not practice affirmational inclusion. They practiced transformational inclusion. There's one more passage. This next one's the clearest of all. And if we're going to understand grace, if we're going to understand what God has done for us, then we're going to have to listen carefully to the beginning of the book of Romans because we have to hear the bad news before we get to appreciate the good news. And that's where Paul brings us in Romans chapter 1. Bob's going to talk about that. See, Paul's letter to the church at Rome is the longest, most comprehensive exposition of the gospel in Scripture. In other words, Romans is a really important book in the New Testament canon, not one to be sure, just put off to the side. Paul opens the letter by talking about the power of the gospel to save everyone who believes. 
Now, the second half of Romans 1 is pretty depressing because Paul outlines the depravity of humanity through three exchanges. The first exchange in verses 21 to 23 details how humans have exchanged the glory of God for idolatry. In other words, instead of worshiping God, he says we all have a proclivity to worship created things. Now, the second exchange, we see humanity trading the truth of God for a lie. And so Paul writes this in verses 24 and 25. He says, therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, after each exchange, we see God progressively handing sinners further and further over to ungodliness. In other words, if we don't worship God, if we suppress the truth, God will give us the desires of our hearts. And those desires aren't for him. Take notice of that word impurity. It's the Greek word akatharsia, which is almost always associated with immorality, particularly sexual immorality. And so that leads to the third exchange where Paul offers an example of this type of immorality, the giving up of natural relations with members of the opposite sex for relations with those of the same sex. Verse 26 and 27, he says this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now let me pause here and recognize something. For many people in the LGBT community, this verse is hard to hear. In fact, if you're here today and you're battling same-sex attraction, I have no doubt that you have heard this verse before. When Romans 1 is mentioned, your antenna probably go up, and you probably said, well, people struggle with all kinds of sexual sin. Why does this seem to get exclusively singled out? And let me say, I can't even imagine how difficult that is for you. And it's probably a valid point. So for all of us here today, I would strongly caution us against elevating any type of sin, especially sexual sin, over another. The point and context of Romans 1 is about Paul making a case for the depravity of humanity, ultimately culminating in Romans 3.23 when Paul emphatically declares, we are all sinners, no one is righteous, no one. And apart from God, we cannot save ourselves, we were destined to live in rebellion against him, we all deserve his wrath. And in the same breath, Paul declares this, he says, but now... But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, he is the one who saves, who died in our place, who took on our sin and gave us his righteousness. And all we can do is fall on our knees and cry out, what mercy. That is the message we all need to hear loud and clear. Let's not make the error of thinking that one sin's greater than another. At the same time, let's not make a different error and think that these verses in Romans should be ignored. Same-sex sexual activity is an example that Paul uses in a horizontal plane of our vertical rebellion against God. Now, some have objected here and said, wait a minute, wait, hold on a second. The issue is not committed same-sex relationships. The issue is the bad kind of same-sex behavior the sexual excess that was common in the ancient world. And so at first glance, that seems like a valid argument. So let's examine just a 
A couple issues with that claim. First, the bad kind of same-sex practice that people refer to most often is that of pederasty, or sexual activity between adults and children. Now, there was actually a Greek word for pederasty, but Paul doesn't use it here. And, and also with that, there were no records in the ancient world of this occurring among women. And in Romans 1.26, Paul pretty specifically speaks to, to lesbian relationships. Second, some will argue that this refers to master and slave relationships or some type of sexual abuse. But Paul's language here indicates consensual activity, which seems to rule that argument out. Finally, people will attempt to say the real problem was an excess of sexual activity. And so the argument goes like this. People will say, well, um, people in the ancient world uh, became dissatisfied with their usual sexual activity, and so they lusted after new experiences, which included same-sex encounters. Now, while there is no doubt that homosexual activity in the ancient world occurred between men who also had sex with women, it does not mean that Paul is excluding other types of same-sex activity as sinful. And so for all those reasons, Paul does seem to be making a pretty strong case prohibiting homosexual activity in Romans 1. And if we're honest, we do have to admit the language is pretty negative. Regarding this passage, Kevin DeYoung says in his excellent book, What the Bible Says About Homosexuality, he writes this, Paul is saying what we find hard to hear, but what the rest of the Bible supports and most of church history has assumed. Homosexual activity is not a blessing to be celebrated and solemnized, but a sin to be repented of, forsaken, and forgiven. And so here's what I leave you with before we move on. All of us are sinners. And we all have to fight our temptations. And just because homosexuality is mentioned here does not mean it is greater than heterosexual sin. All of us must run to the foot of the cross and plead the blood of Jesus, which justifies us before a holy God. And that is the real point that Paul is making in Romans 1. Amen. In light of that, let me give you another piece of wisdom from Sam Albury. He makes this excellent point in his book. He says, churches should feel more like a waiting room for a doctor and less like a waiting room for a job interview. In the latter, we all try to look as competent and impressive as we can. Weaknesses are buried and hidden. But in a doctor's waiting room, we assume everyone is there that is sick and needs help. And this is much closer to the reality of what's going on in the church. Wow. So as we've waded into this really challenging topic this morning, I think this is the place where we need to be at. Yes, we want to be biblical. But if we are going to be truly biblical, we must acknowledge that the Bible says all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short of God's glory, and all of us are in desperate need of his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and a Savior which we have given, been given. That's the core of the gospel, and it must be the heart of the church as well. Now, let me say this, even if we are very loving and careful with our words, even if we do seek to come alongside of people who are struggling the best that we know how, you and I know that we live in a world today where we still may be called hateful because of our convictions. And when it comes to this issue, we must ask this question, whose approval matters most? Whose opinion really matters we, must, we believe we must prioritize God's approval over the approval of man. 
and over the approval of the world and seek to live for him and him alone. But, but, the disapproval of God isn't just upon those who would affirm same-sex relationships. Jesus said this in, in Luke 11. You experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's speaking to the religious people. He's speaking to people like me, people who've had their theology correct, people who believe the right things. And yet, Rather than setting people free, they were putting people in bondage. Rather than taking away their burdens, they were adding more. Church, we have to get better at bearing each other's burdens on this issue, as Galatians 6 says we should. In other words, we don't win people to the gospel simply by quoting Bible verses like weapons. We have to show them Jesus with our actions. People have to know they are loved. We have to humbly share the truth and not look with them with a spirit of condemnation. So often as a church, we have acted like these experts of the law, and rather than opening doors for the gospel, we have slammed them shut. On a personal note, over the past few years, this is an area where I've been growing and learning and hoping to be better. The reason is because in our culture, we we tend to see this issue as just having these two sides. But we would like to present to you today a third way. Jesus was described in John chapter 1 as being full of grace and truth. You know, sometimes when I'm gracious, I can be too permissive. Not Jesus. When Jesus is kind, he's not soft. And sometimes when I'm too truthful, I can be overbearing. Not Jesus. When Jesus is tough, he doesn't hurt. He is full of grace and truth. He is the lion and the lamb. He is the the king and the servant. He said things like, all authority has been given to me. Then it also says, but a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He is our Lord. That is the third way in which the church needs to follow him, being full of both grace and truth, which leads us to our last movement. How do we live out this moral code we've been given? This is so difficult. This is why we're asking Dr. Yarhouse to come next weekend to help us with the practical implications of this, because there's so many complexities, more than we could ever cover in one message. There's issues of what's What's behavior and what's orientation and what's sexual identity and what's gender identity? How do you talk to people who are struggling? Next weekend, we hope to go more in depth about all of that. But as we wrap up today, let's just give a few thoughts to kind of get us going. To begin, I think the church at large needs to start by repenting of the mistakes we've made in the past and acknowledging that although we may have gotten our theology correct, And we can never apologize for our convictions from the word of God. I think what we can do is apologize for the way that we haven't always displayed the grace of the gospel and the fragrance of Jesus Christ in our practice. And so we need to say we're sorry. We're sorry for our cruelty, our harshness, our jokes. We're sorry for oversimplifying this. 
Many of us in the room today have no idea how to even relate to this struggle, yet we pretend like it should be so easy just to change your sexual orientation when most of us would find that to be almost impossible. We need to say we're sorry for treating people of the LGBT community as somehow more broken than the rest of us. We all have sinned, and all of us have fallen short of God's glory. Let me share a story from high school. During my senior year, I led a chapter of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes at my school, and I had the lead role in two plays that year. So my, my, my athletic worlds and my artistic worlds were actually colliding, I felt like. Um, in order to reach more people with the gospel, I got the idea that we should invite some of our friends to our homes and dialogue about issues of faith. And so one night in particular, the topic we were covering was sin. So we invited some friends over, and we, we didn't have a ton of people come that night, but there were several who were not believers, and, and we started to talk about this topic. And so as I shared, I used an example of a recent talk show I watched, and the featured guests were a same-sex attracted couple. And so speaking on the topic of sin, I used that as an example, and I probably was less gracious than I should have been with my words. Well, after the meeting, one of our leaders in our group came to me and talked about a friend that she had brought who wasn't a Christian and who was same-sex attracted. And I felt awful. I wondered how I could be so blind that this was supposed to be a night that would start to open people's eyes to Jesus, and I had inadvertently, through less gracious words, through callousness, closed the door. And while I did apologize to that girl later on for my my callousness, I, I did feel there was a wall there that hadn't been there before. And church, this is this is the complexity of the now what. Because that night in high school, I may have quoted Romans 1. Yes, I know the word of God never returns void, but what if our approach is more like a Pharisee than, than like Jesus? What if we obscure the truth with our pride? And while I completely agree that God works despite us and the Holy Spirit is the one who removes the veil over people's eyes, we are still called to be like Jesus. Grace and truth. And Jesus was harder on the religious people than the non-religious people. And so the question is really not what do we believe. I mean, that's important, but we know that. The question is what do we do now? One of the most moving accounts I've read recently is that of Jackie Hill Perry in her recent memoir, Gay Girl, Good God. She was miraculously delivered from a lesbian lifestyle One night, the Holy Spirit just completely opened her eyes, and her heart was regenerated. And over a number of years, as she grew in her faith, God changed her heart. And now she's married, and she's a couple kids, but at the end of her book, she offers offers several takeaways that we can use as application. And so in her chapter entitled, Same-Sex Attraction and the Heterosexual Gospel, this is what she says. She says, God is not calling gay people to be straight. You'd think he was, by listening to what the church the ways Christians try to encourage same-sex attracted people within or outside their local churches. And she goes on. She says, they dangle the possibility of heterosexual marriage above their heads, point to it like it's heaven on a string, something to grab and get whole with. And although it's well-meaning, it's very dangerous. Why? Because it puts more emphasis on marriage as the goal of the Christian life than knowing Jesus. You see, church... The goal is not to make gay people straight. The goal is to see all people become holy. That may or may not mean marriage. 
It may or may not mean that people don't struggle with same-sex desires anymore. And honestly, how many of us still struggle with a certain sin? No. The goal is to walk with people in the family of God and help them to become holy as God is holy. And so when, you encounter, when we encounter people who struggle with same-sex attraction, I want to challenge us to listen without judgment. It's likely they've met very few Christians who've actually done that. And as you listen, here's three things to consider from Jackie Hill Perry. She says this. She says, we are more than our sexuality. Now, whether you're gay or straight, we have a tendency to let our sexuality define us. It should not. We are so much more complex than our sexuality. When we're talking with people who are same-sex attracted, see the person, not for their sexuality, but for who they are as a whole. Secondly, singleness is not a curse. Let's be careful, again, not to place the emphasis on marriage, but on welcoming people into the family of God and the local church. And third, evangelism is about God. We should be more concerned with capturing people's hearts and seeing them regenerated than focusing on their behavior first. When God captures people's hearts, when he makes them new, behavior will follow. So preach the gospel. Jackie Hill Perry writes this beautifully. She says, evangelism is a word that means to share the good news. More specifically, in this case, the good news of the gospel. Evangelism is all about God because the gospel is all about God. It is God who created us, God who we sinned against. It is God who loved us, God who sent his son Christ to earth. It is Christ who died the death we deserve. It is Christ who appeased God's wrath. It is Christ who rose from the dead. It is Christ who sent the promised Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who softens our hard hearts so that we will repent. It is Christ who we are commanded to place our faith in. It is Christ who saves us, and it is in Christ that we find eternal life. Now that is good news to everyone, gay or straight. Paul does not end with Romans 3.23. He takes us to Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Worship team, if you would come while I finish one more story. It was the story that I began with, if you remember, in this chair over here. This girl's name was Amy. Amy and Vicky, they did decide to come to church that morning. And uh, what we didn't know uh, is that in Amy's background, uh, when she was a little girl and she was nine years old, uh, she was raped by a man. Uh, she kept coming to that church and she said, as I kept coming, we kept coming, we kept on moving closer to the front. She said, they kept on loving us. She said, then we broke up, but I kept on going to that church. And the more I went, the more I started hearing the words of Jesus. And the more I heard the words of Jesus, the more I started believing the words of Jesus. She went to a counselor there named Dan Allender, who worked with her about her inner struggle. She said, I want to be fully healed by God. And as I continued to seek intimacy with him, she said, my lesbian struggles fell away. She said, I'm not sure that God works that way with everybody, but it is how God is healing me. Friends, never underestimate the power of the love of Christ embodied in us, his followers. 
Here at Millington, we like to say we're saving you a seat. That's what we want to do. When the church is at its best, it is that kind of loving community full of grace and truth. I know this is kind of an overwhelming issue, but it's not overwhelming to our God. May his power and his love be with us as we seek to follow him. Amen.